The two scriptures I'd like to speak from today are on page 9 in your bulletin. We'll begin with this well-known text in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And from Peter's first letter, letter, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We pray, Father, now that you will move in our hearts by the Spirit as we hear and do great things in Jesus' good name. Amen. I have a bad pastor confession for you. (laughs) Years ago, I started to get really frustrated with Bible reading plans. I do not like them. Your pastor doesn't like reading the Bible. What are you going to do? Well, it's not that I don't like reading the Bible, but I was frustrated with these plans because I discovered that what the enthusiasts love about Bible reading plans, man, I'm just reading through Bible. I'm just getting through so much Bible. I've been read like the entire, you know, Bible four times since Christmas. That actually became my frustration because I found myself getting through the Bible again and again, getting to know it pretty well, but not understanding it. I kept reading through the same passages that I never understood last year, and here they are again. And I just wanted to stop and look around and say, you know, we all act like we know what this means. (laughs) Everyone else seems to understand how this applies to our lives, and I just don't get it. So can I stop and not read through the Bible this year and actually study a little bit and understand? Well, I'm preaching right now through the Gospel of Luke, and I actually don't want to have that experience as we work through the Gospel of Luke. I don't want to just rush, because I know we have already hit some things in Luke's Gospel that I am sure probably you guys are familiar with, but I don't know that that means we understand these things necessarily. For example, do you actually know who this devil is that Jesus met out in the wilderness when he was tempted? Do you know who the devil is? Of course I know who the devil is. Okay. Do you know what a demon is? Do you know what Luke calls an unclean spirit or an evil spirit is? Well, sure, pastor. It's that little dude who sits on your shoulder with the flaming pitchfork and the terrible attitude, right? That's the demon. Do you actually know what a demon is? Would you 
You ever encounter one? Can you have a demon? Can you be possessed by a demon? People in the gospel were. Why does Peter say be watchful about the devil? Should you be worried about the devil if you're supposed to be watchful? What does Paul mean when he says we wrestle against cosmic powers of spiritual evil? Do you know what wrestling looks like? Oh, sure, Pastor, I wrestle all the time. Do you now? I'd love to see your moves. How do you wrestle? And these rulers and authorities that we supposedly wrestle, are they the same as the demons that Jesus encountered in the Gospels? Etc., etc., etc. I think the more you think about this, the more you realize, you know, it's just good to stop and make sure we understand what we're talking about as we read about the devil and demons and unclean spirits and think about what that might have to do with us today. So what I want to do as we begin is I just want to offer briefly a map of the demonic realm. A map of the demonic realm, for starters. Now, something that illuminates the Bible as you're reading it, up until the resurrection of Jesus, I'd want to emphasize that there is a real shift when Jesus is resurrected, but up until that point in the story, as you're reading through the Bible, it will help us to notice that life with God is presented spatially in those earlier parts of the Bible. By that I mean there are spaces where God meets people, often mountains or altars which are just kind of miniature mountains. There are spaces where God meets people, and so, as the story unfolds, you notice that there are spaces and people in those spaces that are closer to God, and there are spaces and people in those spaces that are very far away from God, as, the, as it's pictured. Now, because God, from the very beginning we see this, God is life. God is the source of life. Things do not even come into, into existence unless God gives them being. He is life, and he is also pictured as light. You know, the beauty that just explodes around you when the sun is shining, God pictures himself as radiant light and as love. God is love. And so, the closer things are to God in the Bible, the more they thrive in harmony. That's what you see from creation on. When things, and, when things are near God, his goodness fills them. And it unites them in harmony, so they're not discordant with one another. Whereas the farther away you move from God, you see the very opposite. You begin to move into darkness. Things begin to become very chaotic. There is often horrific hostility. And of course, ultimately, when you are not with the God who is life, there is death. The ruin of things the unmaking of things. And you see this, obviously, as you read through the Bible. You know, think, for example, about the fact that God, in all of his radiance and all of his light and glory and love, he came down off the top of Mount Sinai where he met with Israel, and he came down into the tabernacle that Moses built. And you have the 12 tribes of Israel. They are configured around that house of God in a very particular way, and this is the life zone. This is where things thrive in harmony. Now, what lies outside that life zone is what? It's the wilderness, a parched place that cannot support life, and there are wild beasts there. There are potentially deadly enemies in the wilderness. 
Well, as you move on in the story, you kind of see it similarly with Canaan, the land of Canaan, the land that flows with milk and honey. Well, this is the life zone, right? This is the life land. And outside the borders of Canaan, you have the nations, the peoples who do not know God. They don't want to know God. They are hostile to his people. And eventually, we come to this city called Zion, God's city, with its temple where, you know, now God kind of settles his glory in a permanent dwelling. And Zion is just pictured as this beacon, this elevated beacon up on the hills of Jerusalem, this beacon of God's presence. In fact, the prophets will eventually speak of nations streaming to the light that streams forth from Zion. It is full of life. It is full of light because God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. And the farther away from Zion you move in the Bible, the more you find yourself in darkness. Out there are the raging, surging seas of the peoples, the surging waters, the unsettled, raging seas of the wicked, the realm of serpentine Leviathan, the king of darkness. And there are wars, and there are plagues, and there are disasters, and there are beasts, weird beasts. And maybe farthest away, you have the dreaded region of Sheol, the place of the dead. Read the Psalms sometimes. You'll see the spatial configuration. It's very, very clear. But it gets weirder. Because at points, as the story unfolds, and we have this kind of spatial configuration of things on the earth, we get a glimpse of something that is a lot weirder. And that is, these are only glimpses, but they're there, and they matter, mapped onto this spatial configuration on earth. So kind of like a, an overlay on top of this, if you will. So here you have these earthly realms of light and darkness. Mapped onto that is a thickly populated world of spirit beings, spirit beings. What on earth or what in heaven are these? Well, children, you know the question, what is God? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. God is pure spirit. Now think about this. When God made then the heavens and the earth, it's interesting to think about the fact that he made some creatures that are more heavenly and he made some creatures that are more earthy. To start at the very kind of most earthy, mineral, a mineral is pure earth. It has no spirit to it at all. But things get kind of strange as you start to climb a little bit in the kingdom of creatures because vegetables are different. Vegetables are not pure earth. Vegetables have this thing that is, it is life within them. They are living things, but they have neither breath nor brain. They just have life, organic life. And then you go up to the animals, and the animals, interestingly, they have breath. They, if I may put it this way, spirate. They breathe. They have spirit and they breathe. They, just, they also have brain. But it's not quite what humans have, because as you now come to humans who are made in God's image, they not only have body and breath and brain, they have spirit, they have thoughts, they don't have just communication, but language that can communicate ideas, and they are now body and spirit. But there's another realm of beings, and these beings, even they're much more heavenly than human beings. They do not have bodies at all. They do not dwell on the earth, but they seem, as the Bible pictures them, they seem to inhabit the air 
See, there's this weird thing in this room right now. It is kind of spiritual in the sense that it is real but completely invisible. Air is kind of like, and, and the air, as you think about it, if we walked outside the building and looked at the air, the air just seems to kind of go on and on and on and on and on into realms you can't even see. Well, these spirit beings are pictured as kind of dwelling in the air above the earth, the heavenly realm above the earth, where we ourselves, with our feet on the ground, breathe into this, we spirate into this air, this kind of heavenly, we might call it the atmosphere today. And the Bible actually speaks quite explicitly. We just read this, actually. It speaks of the heavenly places, full of spirit beings. They're like God in their pure spirituality, but they are not at all like God Because we are told in King Solomon's prayer that heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain him, for he is the creator, the maker, the one from whom all life and being come. But they are like him in their spirituality. They are heavenly creatures. And in this realm of beings, lower than God but above the earth, we find the same spectrum of proximity to God that we saw in the spatial configurations on earth. There are spirit beings who are, if we can speak of spiritual reality this way, they are nearer to God. Nearest to him, of course, are his mighty heavenly hosts. Millions, perhaps, uncountable myriads of holy spirit beings who do his bidding in heaven and on earth. And far away from God's life and his light, There are the human spirits, no longer with their bodies, the human spirits that roam the darkness of Sheol. And in the Old Testament, there was this deep concern. All the dead go to Sheol. But the hope of the righteous was that the righteous will not remain in Sheol. You will not leave your Holy One to see corruption in Sheol. But not just the spirits of the human dead, far from God's life and light, there are also in those far regions rebellious non-human spirits. The New Testament will later call these demons, and this is where perhaps gets the weirdest. So there are demons, non-human spirit beings that are hostile to God, have rebelled against him, but there are also hints that within that body of the demonic spirits, there is an elite group of spirit princes. They're actually called princes in Daniel. And it seems, we get just glimpses of this, it seems that they sit in some sort of heavenly council of spirit beings through whom God rules the nations. So Daniel speaks, for example, of the prince of Persia or the prince of Greece. And there are other places where there is, it seems like there's this sort of council of rulers, authorities, princes, through whom God rules the nations. Perhaps even he assigns them to certain nations, although I'm not sure that's crystal, crystal clear. And they are so connected to God's rule over the nations, they are actually called in places, B'nai Elohim, sons of God or sons of the gods. They are sometimes just called Elohim, gods. The New Testament will later call them rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces in heavenly places. And these wicked princes stir the nations to rebellion. Even as God rules the nations through them, they stir the nations to rebellion. They are, by the way, 
the real thing behind man-made idols. Paul says in Corinthians that while a block of stone that you carve into an image is obviously not a real god, and you can dismiss it as nothing, but he also says there are demonic forces behind that with whom you are not as Christians to have fellowship. So these Elohim, or these B'nai Elohim, or these princes, or rulers and authorities, they are the kind of real spiritual thing behind these man-made idols that the nations serve rather than serving the living and the true God. And of course you know that above these various demons and princes, there is the first rebel spirit, the devil, that old serpent, Beelzebul, Lord of the trash heap, as Jim Jordan calls him, Ha-Satan, the accuser, takes a particular shape and gets a proper name when Jesus speaks of him as Satan in the New Testament. He is the prince par excellence. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air, of the heavenlies. He, is the real, he has real authority, although it is temporary authority, to offer as the prince of the princes, to offer all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory to whom he will until... Messiah. So that's a map of the demonic realm. I want to just now talk briefly about Messiah and the demons. Because by the time of Christ, by the time of Messiah, the spiritual forces of evil that are in the nations, they have infiltrated God's holy space. They have infiltrated God's holy land. They've even infiltrated God's temple. And now the true son, not a son of the gods, not a B'nai Elohim, but the true Son of God, who is God from God, light from light, the very essential Son of God, and the true Prince, God from God, he must cast these demons out. And so he comes into the land of Israel, and his arrival and his announcement of God's kingdom in, in breaking, that's what Jesus' message. He comes, he says, the kingdom of God, the rule of God has come. God's life is breaking in. His light and his love are breaking in. And as Jesus, the true son of God, the true prince, as he speaks that gospel and he speaks the word of God, you, what do you see? You see God releasing his people from everything that destroys their humanity. Diseases of the body. Demons that torment the spirit. They flee before him. And Israel is again being saved from the darkness that envelops the nations. But... We all can see right away as the gospel opens. Luke's very clear about this, that while Christ will encounter various demons in various places, interestingly, they do talk. They talk to him, which tells us they are not just impersonal forces. They are not just mental illnesses. They are personal beings. But while he encounters demons in various places, it is that first rebel. It is the chief prince of darkness that Jesus has come to dethrone, and he says, I will bind the strong man. And the devil knows this. And of all things, this I don't think the devil saw coming. Of all things, the pivotal moment in Jesus' victory over that ancient adversary came of all places at the cross. Because Satan is the destroyer. He is the murderer. He accuses of sin, and he knows God will judge sin, and he wants humanity to die and burn. And now he is to the extent we can figure out what might have been going on in the mind of the evil one, he has managed to orchestrate the death of the son. 
He has taken out the Messiah. He has had him nailed to a cross and murdered. What he does not realize, of course, is that Jesus, the true man, representing all of his people, he has taken all of our sin and all of God's curse, and he has done something absolutely unprecedented. He has taken that curse, and he has so borne it in himself, in all the excellent, infinite perfection of his person, he has borne that curse to the uttermost, and he has exhausted the curse. He has absolutely comprehensively answer the righteous justice of God against our sin. That I don't think Satan ever saw coming. And that is what God sent him to do and what the writer of Hebrews tells us is in doing that he stripped from the devil the destroyer the power of death. Because you can, you can kill humans because of their sin. You can, you can watch them die and burn because of their sin. But if Jesus exhausts the death curse the power of death has been stripped away. And that, when Jesus walks out of the grave, much to the shock of everyone in heaven and earth, that paves the way for what Paul in Ephesians 4, building on Psalm 68, which we sang, calls the victory parade of Jesus. He says in Colossians that having disarmed the rulers and authorities, they have no authority anymore. He is the victorious resurrected son having disarmed them, the rulers, the authorities, the princes, he puts them to open shame. And the best I can imagine this is that when Jesus ascends to heaven, what we don't see on earth is what the heavenly hosts see. And I imagine they thundered the praise of the prince as he returns, striding into his eternal glory, leading in his train these crushed, defeated powers, these once pompous rulers and authorities who made war against God himself and he has bound them and he has shamed them and they cringe behind him as he strides to take his throne. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And Paul says he is seated far above authorities and powers and rulers and every name that is named in this age and the age to come. He ascends to rule now, not just over demons who torment individuals, but over those Elohim that till now had authority over peoples, peoples and places in the world. And that, of course, is what launches the church's mission. To what? To proclaim liberty to the captives, not in Israel now, but among all nations. Jesus is victor over all the gods. The doors of their strongholds, the door, indeed, of Sheol itself has been thrown open by his resurrection. He is now Lord, alone, over all peoples and all places, as the song goes in Revelation, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Amen? That's the mission of the church. And now I want to just talk briefly about that, and then we'll be done. Messiah and the demons, but now, thirdly, the, our mission, the church's mission, amid demonic powers. Because I want to ask you guys a question. What happened to those demonic rulers and authorities now that they are stripped of their power and their authority? What are they doing? Well, they hunkered down in the nations of the world and they hold on to their influence in these peoples and places as long as they can and they do so in absolute dread of the arrival of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they know something the Son of God said. I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will be powerless to stand against it as the church advances in the world with the gospel. So those powers, those rulers and authorities knew their time was now marked. The gospel's coming. It will spread out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's coming. And when it comes, it will break the strongholds of spiritual influence. And that brings us to spiritual warfare. One of the very unhelpful strands, very unhelpful strands of teaching in churches presents spiritual warfare in terms of these kind of theatrical power encounters with demons. Exorcisms. This is what I was raised in. I heard some really spooky stuff happening in my living room as I lay in my bed as a child. Because we were taught that these power encounters, you know, you're like commanding the demons and having these sort of like heavy-duty encounters with them. Michael Heiser, whose work I don't entirely agree with, but who's done some very fine work on demonology in recent years, he says something very simple and very profound about this. He says, we as Jesus' disciples are never commanded to rebuke spirits and demand their flight in the name of Jesus. It is unnecessary. Their authority has been withdrawn by the Most High. We don't have to command spirits to flee. It is unnecessary. Their authority has been withdrawn by the Most High. Instead, he says, Jesus gave the Great Commission. And if you hear nothing else I say today, this is the main point I want to make. What drives out demonic... What's the Great Commission? Go and what? Make disciples. What drives out demonic influence, beloved, is not power encounters. It is discipleship. That's what drives out the demonic. As the word of Christ, who is Jesus? What has he accomplished on the cross and the resurrection? What is God doing in the world now through him as he builds his kingdom? That word, as it dwells in us richly, Paul says, as it dwells in us firing our faith, firing obedience to Jesus as Lord, do you realize that when that is going on in a person's life or a community, the devil cannot find a foothold there? He cannot get at your mind when it's full of Christ and his word. He cannot... He cannot find a foothold in your heart, your desires, your emotions, even your bodily habits when the word of Christ is just dwelling in you richly. And that's what clarifies this armor. People wonder about the armor. Like, how do you put on the armor? You know what? You can really simplify this in light of what we've just been saying about discipleship under the word of Christ, under the gospel. As you look at this armor, here's what it's saying in one sentence. Gird all of you with all of the gospel. Gird all of you with all of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of that gospel, gird it on, the righteousness God has given to you through Jesus, and that he is working in you by the Holy Spirit. Put that on. Put on the readiness, Paul says, that comes when you know the gospel of peace. Man, I'm ready. Got my shoes on. Take faith in the gospel as your shield. Put the message of salvation on your head as a helmet. Take the sword of the word of God and go get ready to make disciples with it and, and, and engage in battle for the souls of others and pray in the spirit and persevere. That's the armor. It's all gospel related. Or as Peter puts it, resist the devil firm in what? Firm in your faith. In what? The gospel. The good news of Jesus. So this is what spiritual warfare looks like. I'm almost done. Spiritual warfare looks like two things. It looks like believing the gospel and living the gospel. It looks like believing the gospel. It looks like believing the gospel. The reason why we need constant gospel preaching in the church is that our faith, beloved, you know this, it needs to be reinforced, doesn't it? The devil neuters the power of the gospel 
when the army entrusted with that gospel starts getting disillusioned or distracted, if he can get into the Lord's host among you all, and he can either disillusion you or distract you, he can neuter the power of the gospel. He will try to disillusion Christians. There are Christians. Man, the last two and a half years have taught me we are not immune from this. Christians start feeling like God's enemies are winning. I hear this so much from Christians today. This hangdog, you know, woe is us. Look at the power of God's enemies. Do you realize, beloved, the power in this world comes and goes in various places. The authority center never shifts. All authority belongs to whom? Jesus alone, and he gives it to whom he will, which means some days the church has power, some days the enemies of God have power, but that, those power differentials, they will all iron out in the end. The authority doesn't change, which means it doesn't really matter what's happening in the realms of power. What matters is who has authority, and when you know that, believe that, the devil cannot disillusion you or distract you. I mean, when you're, you know, I've never, I think we are the, the generation that more than any before us, this is, this is one of our battles, spiritually. You, you young people, I love you to pieces. Some of you need to wake yourself up spiritually because it is possible for Satan to so draw us away with other things, some of which are good, some of which are bad, some of which are just pretty dumb. But we're so into the cares and pleasures and riches of this world and this life, we actually, at a heart level, stop caring about the gospel and the mission. There are churches that are just dead spiritually and they're ineffective in spiritual warfare because they're so distracted. Look at the tree, Eve. Oh! But living the gospel. This is the last big thing I'm going to say and I really want this to hopefully sink in, so please just hang with me. Can I ask you guys a question? Living the gospel. This will seem not related, but it is. Where's Jesus right now? Where's Jesus? Chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul says, he has, God has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, here's a crazy question. Where are you? You, chapter 2, are seated with him in the heavenly places. No, pastor, I'm actually sitting in Syosset. Nevertheless, you are seated with him in the heavenly places, and this is what that means. The gospel, the good news is not just that Jesus reigns, but that you're with him as he reigns. Let me say that again. The good news is not just that Jesus reigns, although that's marvelous news. You are with him as he reigns. Spiritually, you're with Jesus in his rule. And that means that your earthly life, where your feet are on the ground, right now here in Syosset, your earthly lives are theaters of that spiritual reality. I'm with Jesus. <laughs> I'm with the Lord, and my life on earth is to be a visible exhibit of Jesus' lordship. Because Paul says in chapter 3, and this is even still more amazing, God intends through the church that his manifold wisdom will be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What on earth is he saying? This is what he's saying. He's saying that God wants our lives under Jesus' lordship, working out on earth the fact that we're with him in his reign, God wants that to show, to kind of rub it in the face of the rulers and authorities, you have no authority. Your authority's been broken. Look at that life. Look at that community. Look at those people living under Jesus. Every time a disciple is made, 
is baptized, begins to obey the Lord, the gates of hell get shakier. And this is how we wrestle. This is how we shake the gates of hell. In the middle of the letter, between when Paul says, through the church, God's going to make known to rulers and authorities his wisdom, and where he says, in the heavenly places, you're wrestling. In between, he talks very specifically about what this looks like. Every single day, he says, here's what it looks like. You're with Jesus as he reigns. Here's what it looks like. You put off the ways of the old self under the devil's power. You put off the lying, the stealing, the corrupting talk. You put away the bitterness, the wrath, the sexual immorality, the coveting, all that stuff. And you put on, sound like the armor? You put on the ways of the new self. The new self with Jesus. You put on truth and generosity and thanksgiving and submitting to each other and your wives start submitting to their husbands and your husbands start loving your wives and you children obey your parents and you parents start raising your kids in the Lord and you slaves and masters have a Christian relationship with each other. That is spiritual warfare. Especially in your households, Paul says. You know why so much of your household life is so hard? You know why Christian marriage is so hard? You know why submitting to your husband is hard? Loving your wife is hard? Loving your parents and submitting to them is hard? And taking care of your kids in a way that doesn't frustrate them is hard? Because it's spiritual warfare. That's why it's hard. We should expect it to be hard because we are shaking the gates of hell by living the gospel. And Peter says the devil is just prowling. Oh, he hates the church. He's prowling, seeking a foothold. He says, you be watchful. You keep awake. You pay attention. And you put on those virtues and habits of the new self. Because that's putting on the gospel in real time. It is gearing up for active combat. I'll close with this. My son, Kenton, I have his permission to share this because I don't want to frustrate him. He's taken up a new hobby about nine months ago. They call it airsofting. And what this is is a bunch of men and boys get together in a big dark room and they shoot each other with BBs for four hours. It's <laughs> there we are. And he's really into this. And well, I've noticed something as my son is gearing up for war. He puts in an enormous amount of time. I mean an enormous amount of time. He is focused. Because he's getting ready. He's going to have to face the BBs. And he's always trying out equipment. And he's got some that works and some that works better and some that works fantastic. It's the best of the best. And he, he knows it. He, he's studied this stuff. He's paying attention to his equipment. And he's researching all the time. And he's taking some wounds, so he's adding protection to certain critical places in his body. And he's practicing his skills. I got more BBs in my backyard than I can ever get rid of. Because he just empties clips into my backyard, practicing, getting, making sure he knows his weapons, knows how to use them. He's practicing his skills. He runs, he slides on his knee pads. He's, he's working at getting ready for battle. And he's talking to other fighters. And there's a whole online thing of airsoft people talking to each other. And he's connected to these people and he's talking to these other fighters. And he puts aside other things because he's getting ready for battle. And I get to drive him to Farmingdale for this. And the other night in the car, we were coming home. And he said to me something that was beautiful to hear. He said, Dad, you know what? He's been at this for a while. He said, for the first time tonight, I felt really confident. I was ready. I knew what I was doing. It's interesting that Paul concludes by saying that's what we need to be praying for each other. For boldness. Pray and keep praying for all the saints. Perseveringly make supplication for them, especially those who have to preach the gospel, that God will give us that confidence, that boldness that flows from really believing the gospel's true 
and really living it every day, making progress in putting on and arming ourselves with the new self in Jesus. And that if God gives us occasions to open our mouth, he says, pray that God will enable us to speak the gospel boldly. And I love the way he concludes in verse 20, because that's the way this hell-shaking news ought to be spoken. Boldly. Jesus is Lord. Amen. Father in heaven, give us that boldness that comes from believing and living the gospel. In Jesus we pray. Amen.